The following message was recorded Sunday, December 3, 2023. Pastor Ritt continues his series in the book of Acts. This morning we cover Acts chapter 8 verses 4 through 25. Philip goes to Samaria and shares the gospel and many were saved, including Simon the sorcerer. And now, here's Pastor Ritt. Turn with me to Psalm 39 for a moment. Psalm 39. And we are going to continue in our study of Acts. I think it uh, will uh, be a good way, way of us to segue into this season of hope, this week of hope. But in chapter, uh, or excuse me, in Psalm 39, it's a chapter as well, chapter 39, Psalm 39, verse 7. Everybody turn there. When you're there, just look up. You know, the angels, uh, it's wonderful when they sing, and I'm sure God thinks it's sweet, but you know, the sweetest sound that, angel, that God hears is not the singing of angels, is it? No, what is it? <laughs> no, 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 I'm talking about the singing now. It's not the singing of angels, but it's the singing of his people, the redeemed. In the Revelation, it's not, it's not revelations, is it? It's not plural, right? The book of the Revelation, it's Revelation, one singular, one revelation of God that's with the... Yeah. There is a song that only the redeemed can sing. Angels can't sing. And it's glorious, and it is sweet to God's ears. So when you sing, especially these Christmas... I, love, I don't know about you, but I love Christmas songs. I try to get Gail to start playing Christmas music on November the 1st. And she likes to do it on the Friday after Thanksgiving. I think next year we'll start in October. <laughs> oh, but nothing is sweeter in the ears of God than when his people, the redeemed, are singing of his glorious works on our behalf. Amen? But Psalm 39, speaking of hope, hope that is a certainty, right? A certain expectation of a future event. The psalmist writes in verse 7 of Psalm 39, Now, Lord, what do I wait for? For my hope is in you. The Adventist, right? Advent, the coming. That's what we're waiting for. Now, when the psalmist wrote this, what were they waiting for? The first coming of Messiah. Thank you, somebody said it. They're waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. Now, the Messiah has come, hasn't he? Yes. And now we wait, we wait in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. Is it a certainty? And, and you know, just as the second coming of Jesus is absolutely certain, so is your salvation absolutely certain and assured. I, I want you to know, as far as this pastor is concerned, it is impossible for you to lose your salvation. Why? Because it's a gift of God, not of man, right? But of God. And I remember doing a Bible study out of my home in New York in the early 80s. And there was a woman coming to the Bible study I was doing in my home, and she had been teaching Sunday school for a thousand years. I mean, she, uh, Betsy Collins was her name. She was an older woman. She was in her 80s. And I was teaching on the second coming of Jesus. And she was from a Dutch Reformed church and culture. And they embraced covenant theology, and covenant uh, theologians have a very different view of the second coming and of eschatology in the Bible. And she stopped me and she said, are you trying to tell me that you believe that Jesus is literally coming back to earth? I said, no. The Bible tells me that. 
Isn't that right? It's not what I believe. It's what the Bible teaches. And, and I, I couldn't believe for the first time in her many decades of life, she realized that it, it was true, the promise of his coming. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Why do we wait, Lord? What are we waiting for in hope, in this certain expectation? We wait for his coming. But this morning, what I want to talk to you is about the hope that you have and the absolute certainty and assurance of your salvation as well. Turn me to John 6 for a minute. We will go over to Acts. But not at this moment. Why do you think he was born at night? Why wasn't he born in the day? He's the light of the world. He should have been born during the day, right? Wouldn't you think? Instead of the night, the darkest part of the night, why was he born at night? Beginning of the beginning of the new day for the Jews. Every sunset was the new day, not sunrise. Sunset was a new day for the Jews, right? And their reckoning of days. But, but why at night and not during the day? The light came into the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. Comprehend is the word they're using in the Greek text, but it means to be overcome. That's why he came at night. Hmm. To bring this light and love and life that can only be found in Christ Jesus for all were dead in their trespasses and sins until he came. Hmm. Zombies, the walking dead. <laughs> That's what we were. But chapter 6 for a moment in John's Gospel, look with me. Verse 35, and Jesus said to them, well, back up, verse 32. Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is declaring there that he is the bread of life. Right. Where was he born? Bethlehem. What does it mean? House of bread. Isn't that amazing that the bread of life was born in the house of bread? Coincidence, right? No, coincidence is not a kosher word. <laughs> and then he goes on to say and they said to him Lord give us this bread always and he said to them I am the bread of life he who comes to me shall never hunger he who believes in me shall never thirst but I say to you that he who have seen me and yet you do not believe now he's talking to the religious community there in Israel they did not have eyes to see nor ears to hear nor heart to believe verse 37 in particular now this hope, this absolute certainty that we have in a future event, our glorification. In John 14, we read that there are many what? Many mansions in heaven. What are those mansions in heaven? It's your glorified body. If you really understand what he's talking about, when he talks about these mansions, he's not talking about property or, or real estate. Stone, timber, no, no, no. He's talking about the spiritual body that we're going to have, that glorious spiritual body that will last forever and ever and ever. That's the mansion in heaven, beloved. And here he goes on to say, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will be no means cast out. No, who gave who to who? The Father gave you to the Son as a... As it, what kind of a gift? September of 2008, I flew down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Hollywood to be specific, and I asked this uh, elder gentleman, Joseph Vizendi, if he would graciously give me his daughter as a gift in marriage. 
That's the gift that the Father has given to his Son in you, the bride of Christ. Do you understand that? You're, you're a gift from God the Father to the Son. Do you ever think of it that way? And the gift is a bride for his Son. Look at the text. Yes, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Is there an assurance here? A certainty? Yeah. A hope from a biblical understanding? Absolutely. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father. Who's the Father? Hmm. El Gabor, the Almighty, El Shaddai, right? He's the Father, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present. And what does he say here? This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose about 10%. Is that what he said? No. His return, his, his return is guaranteed. It's 100%. All that the Father has given Jesus in that bride, that gift, will come to Jesus, and all who come to Jesus, he'll by no means lose one, not one. Oh, boy. Is that a blessed hope? Do you believe that? I mean, that's what it says, doesn't it? Or am I twisting the text? You know, it is true. It is true. You can torture any text, and it'll confess to anything. Okay, but I'm not torturing the text. This is what the text is saying, isn't it? Yeah. Read on with me. Yes, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose no one, but shall raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of Man and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up in the last day. Hallelujah! Verse 41, the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. And he said to them, is not this Jesus the son? They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know. How is it then, he says, I have come down from heaven. Wrong. Wrong. Was Joseph his father? No. God was his father. They just didn't know that, you know. Joseph was his stepdad, right? The Jews then complained about that. How does he say he came down from heaven? Jesus, verse 43, therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. Very important. Verse 44, listen to me, this hope, this certainty this assurance that we have. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Beloved, is salvation dependent upon you? No. But we are commanded to do what? To bear witness, to evangelize. But I don't know whom the Father has chosen. This wonderful adventure I'm on is to discover who is it, that, who's the next target of the Holy Spirit, who's being hunted down by the hound of heaven. Right? The Holy Spirit. That's my adventure. I share with everybody because I don't know. But I do know this. Of all the Father has chosen to come unto Jesus, all will come unto him. And of all who come unto Jesus, he loses none. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that comforting to know that? That he is sovereign in my justification. He is sovereign in my sanctification. He is sovereign in my ultimate glorification. Isn't that true? What hope? Read on. Therefore, everyone who has... Uh, let's see. Where did I end up? Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, and he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life, and I am the bread of life, and the fathers ate, and the man in the wilderness and died. Look at verse 65, same chapter. What are we talking about? The absolute assurance of your salvation, that hope, that certain expectation of a future event. What will that future event be? Your glorification. When we're translated, when we become everything Jesus desires us to be. What did I say verse to go to? 65. 65. He, Jesus, said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless, what? Now what does that say? It's all God. I'm sorry. I, I don't make an apology for this. But that's what it says. And I, I have to be so eternally grateful by the way in which I live my life in thanksgiving for the thanksgiving for the salvation he has brought into my life, that the Father has called me. And we're going to see that in a minute as we continue on in Acts chapters 9, 10, and 11, 8, 9, and 10, excuse me. Go with me. One more, one more section. John was the apostle of love. And who is he quoting? Jesus. And who is Jesus? Perfect love. This is perfect love speaking now. This, this is not my words. This is not the words of some reformer, okay, or some covenant theologian. I'm not a reformer. I'm not a covenant theologian. I'm a biblicist. But I understand that salvation is of God and not of man. And I'm so thankful for it. Go with me, John 10. We'll go there. And there's many more scriptures we can go to. There's over a hundred that I was looking at that affirm the assurance of our salvation. Uh, where did I say to go? Okay, let's go to John 10. John 10, verse 25. When, in John 10, what's, what's the, uh, we went through this Wednesday night a little bit. What, what's the context here? Jesus is the? The good shepherd. Yeah, if you were here Wednesday night, we went through where? Ezekiel where? Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, the contrast is between the wicked shepherd and the good shepherd, right? And we said he's not only the good shepherd, he is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd, right? John says he's the good shepherd, okay? Hebrew says he is the great shepherd. And First Peter says he is the chief shepherd, and then we saw the comparison, how it so fits, so dovetails between what they were saying about the good chief and great shepherd of the flock and those shepherd psalms that were written. And which psalms were they? 22, 23, and 24. The shepherd and his cross, right? 23, the shepherd and his crook, right? 24, the shepherd and his and, and if you weren't here, I encourage you to just get out. It was, just, it's, it was such a wonderful and exciting study as we made that comparison and looked at our good shepherd. And that's what Jesus is declaring of himself here in John 10, that he is the good shepherd. But where I want to pick up in particular, okay, let's look at um, verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. Isn't that true? <laughs> if you go to Israel and you, you see these sheepfolds, the huge sheepfolds, and, and several shepherds will come in and bring their flocks into that sheepfold. But in the morning when they call them out, the shepherd will call out just his sheep, and every one of those sheep that are his know his voice and they'll follow him. 
It's amazing. It's a, it's a fascinating thing to watch. One by one, these shepherds come forward, start to call their sheep, and these sheep that are only his, come on. Who gives you an ear to hear? The voice of the shepherd. How often does Jesus say, and he who has an let him hear, let him hear. You know, uh, you know, I love dogs, right? I've had dogs all my life. And, and you don't give suggestions to dogs. You give commandments, okay? But my wife, well, she gives suggestions. And she loves that dog. You know, she's the heart, I'm the head, right? She's the grace, I'm the law, okay? <laughs> so she's on the phone with me, and she's in our driveway in the garage, and he's at the top of the hill, and he won't come in the garage. And I said, put the speakerphone on. And she put the speakerphone on. And I said, Snickers, come. <laughs> ah, he knows the master's voice, right? Now, he's looking around wondering, you know, because, you know, if he didn't come, there was going to be a, a what else, you know? <laughs> oh, but listen. And he's more secure with you. He is, yeah. Yeah, the alpha. Aren't we, aren't we more secure when, when we're sensing the presence of our shepherd? You know, I've always said, you know, the place I want to be all the time is right next to my shepherd, okay? I, I want this shoulder right up against his thigh, his left thigh. And I want this shoulder right up against his staff, his crook. And that's the safest place in all the world for me to be. I'm not trying to see how far I, out there I can get away from him. No, no, no. Uh, our desire should be to see how close we can walk with him. Amen? Yeah, it's true. I, I went to a gathering yesterday, and I'm witnessing to some folks I've never met before. And uh, my wife was just on the opposite end of this little island as I'm talking to these folks and uh, talking about uh, how every scripture in the Bible has one technical interpretation. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. If you don't know that, then you, you will easily get confused because then there are those who torture the text and the text confesses to things that aren't true. Right? But every single biblical text has one technical interpretation. And so I was sharing that, and I, you know. And then they said, Yeah, but do you live it? I said, I don't know, you gotta ask her. Because she was right across from me. Yeah, and, and that's the important thing, isn't it? Are, are we really allowing, listen to me, are we really allowing our shepherd to live his life through us? That's what it means to be a Christian. I can't do it, but we allow him to live through us. Amen? Yeah. I gotta hurry on, I got a lot to cover this morning. Yes, they know my voice, and they follow me, verse 28, and I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father, who has given them to me, who's given us to him? The Father. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Listen, Allstate didn't get that. It was biblical. We're in the good hands, people, right? The Father and the Son. Do you understand that? Now, when I first got saved, I was under the erroneous belief I could lose my salvation. And I lost my salvation every week. Why? Listen closely now. I hope I can get as far as I want to go this morning, but <clears throat> rather than leaning upon the sovereignty of God in justification, in sanctification, 
which will ultimately validate my glorification. To some degree, I was trusting in my own ability, my free will to obey him. And the more I tried to obey him according to my strength by pulling myself up by my bootstraps, what happened? I failed. I failed. I failed. And then I'd wonder, am I even a saved man? But I, as I came to a more mature understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation in justification and sanctification, it changed everything. And now every single morning I can wake up and I said, Father, I am going to exercise my free will by surrendering to you this morning and acknowledging my total dependence upon your Holy Spirit to be, to be the son that you called me to be, to be the husband to my wife, Gail, to be the father to my son, Richard, to be the pastor to the church here that I serve. Every single day, I reckon. Now, as I have been doing that, the more I lean upon the sovereignty of God in my sanctification, (sighs) happy days are here again. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, So be careful. That assurance of our salvation that we have in Christ Jesus because of the Father's will, it is such a strengthening truth. It, it, it is so liberating where I can live a life that pleases him through him. Do you understand? Not through my own strength and my own ability, my own efforts. No. No one can snatch them, me out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch me out of my Father's hand. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love that is of God in Christ Jesus. And then he lists all these things that, that can't possibly separate you. Talking about angels or demons. Nothing present, nothing past, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth. No created thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What would that include, a created thing? Yourself. Yourself. Do you understand that? Yourself. When you're walking in a very busy area, right, Daniel, with little Levi? And there's lots of people around and some dangerous situations that could occur. We could run out into the street. You got a hold of his hand, don't you? And you have a hold of his hand in a far more secure grip and fashion, not in a painful fashion, but, but in a security of his hand where he can't possibly get away from you. He tries to, can he? That's the way I understand my father's love for me. I can't get away from him. Isn't that wonderful? Hope. Wow, what a blessed hope. Okay, to our study. That was just an introduction. Go to Acts chapter 8. Nobody wanted to have lunch today anyway, did they? No, you ate too much at Thanksgiving anyway. I know you did. So we're seeing the persecution that's occurring in the early church, right? And the first one to be persecuted, put to death, martyred, martyro, was who? Stephen. Stephen. And what was Stephen? What was Stephen? A deacon. What else was Stephen? He was a Hellenist. He was a Jew who spoke Greek, embraced uh, some Greek culture to a degree. He wasn't what they considered a Hebrew. The Hebrews, the Hebrews in Jerusalem, what did they speak? Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So the Hebrew of Hebrews would speak Aramaic. They were in Jerusalem, and they were discriminatory, prejudicial towards the Hellenists. The Hellenists were those who spoke Greek. So the persecution in the early church first began against the Hellenists. Now, why do you think it began against the Hellenists so easily? 
because they spoke Greek and you could identify them quickly. You know, it's amazing. I've been here for 30 some years now and I've lost my New York accent. I know I have, but I go places. You're from New York, aren't you? Well, how do you know? Oh, you guys, you know. <laughs> right? And, and we, I tell them I worship Jesus, but you know how to say Jesus' Jesus' name in the Hebrew? You got to be from New York. So when you answer in the affirmative, you say, Yeshua. Yeshua. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah, sure. Okay? Yeah, sure. What's his name? Yeshua. Right? <laughs> so that's why the persecution of the Hellenists began, because they were so easily identifiable because of their language, you see. And the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. They were speaking Aramaic, and they, the persecution, it was harder to detect them. So that's why. So look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul consented to his death, the death of Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And I just explained that to you. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. There were probably Hellenists as well who loved Stephen. Who do you think one of those Hellenists might have been? Saul. Saul? No, Saul consented to his death. Philip. Philip. Philip and Stephen and five other deacons that are mentioned now. They're not, that's not the office of deacon at this time, although that's what it becomes. But these are guys who just volunteer to be table waiters, you know, just to serve in any capacity they can. And so genuine, so authentic in their surrender to God. And God used them in such a powerful way. But they risked their lives to devout men. What an opposite of, of Saul and these men who murdered Stephen. And they made great lamentation over him. Now, verse 3, now, as Saul was making havoc, made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men, women, committing them to prison. We talked about that last time we were together. We only covered those first three verses. And we said in the Septuagint, when they reference this particular word, it speaks of what? Animal, a boar, a wild boar in the woods, rooting out roots and, and just destroying. And that's what Paul was doing single-handedly. We looked last week and we saw that when Paul gets apprehended by the Holy Spirit in chapter 9, what was the result? Peace throughout the church. Wow, this one man, one man, and such destructive influence. One, we know what one man can do in destroying a people, a group, a nation. Hmm. Now we're into new territory. So let's go to chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, it's amazing how God will use very difficult circumstances in our lives to accomplish his will. So often he has to take us completely out of our comfort zone and, and, and scatter us abroad like, like uh, salt being spread on a plate, like seed being scattered in the field. What's the word here for scattered? Diasporo, diasporo. And, and the sporo part of the dia is likened unto a farmer who throws seed. So they were scattered. Now, they were fulfilling what Jesus said was exactly going to take place that Luke records for us in chapter 1, verse 8. What was that? That you'll be witnesses to me, or for me, unto Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But they weren't going anywhere. Why? Uh, <coughs> They were having a love fest, okay? They were very comfortable. They were enjoying what God was doing there in Jerusalem. They didn't want to go outside of Jerusalem. And so God uses the persecution to scatter them. Will persecution ever destroy the church? 
No. What's the most dangerous thing that the church experiences? Prosperity, affluence, pleasure. That's the most dangerous thing we experience. Yes. No, persecution has never hurt the church. Hey, hey, before October the 7th and that horrible act of demonic brutality in Israel, what was the condition in Israel? There was a civil war taking place. I mean, not with guns, but they were a divided people. There was such a division among the people of Israel. And that's why Iran decided to use its proxies to go ahead and make that attack now because of the weakness of the administration in the United States, because of the division that was occurring not just here but overseas in Israel, which is a greater division than we're experiencing here. But they were wrong. As a result of that horrible attack, what happened? God used it to bring a unity to Israel that they have not seen since 1948. Israel is standing as one man in the opposition to the world. And we know that the Bible tells us that all the nations of the world shall come against Jerusalem, and that's exactly what we're seeing take place right now, tonight. Tonight we'll get geopolitical. From 6 to 7, I'll share with you some of my perspective on what's taking place, and then from 7 to 8, we're going to pray. Please join me. The greatest gift that you could offer to the people of God, Israel, is your prayers. And we're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So come and join us tonight, please. Nonetheless, okay, so they were scattered because of the persecution. The persecution never hurts the church. It purifies the church. It removes the dross. And they went everywhere preaching the word. Isn't that wonderful? And then Philip, this table waiter, went down to the city of Samaria. Now, why would Philip be comfortable in Samaria? Yeah, what are the Samaritans? They're half Jews, half Samarian, half Babylonian. Uh, wh when did the northern kingdom of Israel, when did that get carried away into captivity by the Samaritans, by the uh, uh, Assyrians? 721 B.C., that's right, 721 B.C. When did the southern kingdom of Judah get carried away into Babylon? 586 B.C. Now, during that time, you had a lot of intermarriage, right? Now, there's no problem with intermarriage today, is there? I married a Hungarian, and I don't even like goulash, you know. But I like the Hungarian, right? She married an Italian, right? And so there's nothing wrong with intermarriage today, right? The problem is a believer should never be yoked to an unbeliever. You know the problem with that, right? Hmm? Could you come over here? So I'm going to stay right there. Give me a hand. You're a beautiful believer, you know? She's the believer, and I'm, I'm, I'm the believer. She's an unbeliever. But you're not. You're a beautiful believer. She's going to try to pull me in her direction. I'm going to try to pull her in my direction. Who's going to win? She is. She is. She's got the advantage, right? Whoa! <laughs> Get out. Get out. <laughs> But she's got the advantage. That, listen, that, that's why God says that. Be very careful. Marriage, marriage can be heaven on earth, or it can be a, a living. Hmm. You know. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Leverage. Leverage. Oh, you could do it. You could do it. I know you could do it. You pull me all the time. Huh? <laughs> 
<laughs> like, like Goldie said, yeah, he is the head, but I'm the neck. I turned it where I wanted to go. <laughs> where was I? Chapter 8. Philip went down to Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Uh, for unclean spirits, what are they? Demons. Demons cried with a loud voice coming out of many who were, who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was such great joy in that city. Wow, this is a table waiter like Stephen. Some would think, well, whoa, poor Stephen. I mean, he died such a premature death. Is that true? No, no of course not. It's not true. Listen, God is sovereign. Is God sovereign? God's chosen your birthday, right? You think God has chosen your departure? Yeah, and it's not your death day. It's our departure. I can't wait for my day of departure. I just don't know when it is, right? Hmm. But the Bible says the days of our lives would be 70 years. And by reason of strength, they may be. Oh, I already had my 70. I'm ready. I'm ready. I don't need to be here any longer, but he knows my departure date. There's no premature deaths, is there? No, no, God is sovereign. And all they may have questioned and lamented, why? Why? Did you ever have that happen? Lose someone early in their life? I cried until I had no more tears. I know what a heartache feels like, truly, to have your heart hurt. Yeah. And then trying to process. Why? Why? But, but that's where he says, can I trust you in this suffering? Can you, can you process this in an understanding of my sovereignty, that my will is best, that all things work together for good? For those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Is that true? Is it all things? Yes. Yes. And so there are things we just don't understand, but as you begin to process those things that, that are so hurtful, so painful, process them with an understanding that Father knows best. And we may not ever know in this side of life this side of heaven, but he knows, and we have to trust him. Amen? And I'm sure there was great lamentation made over Stephen. We read it. Why, Lord, when so much was going on? But, the, but then God was going to continue. God's, never, God's work is never finished just because somebody passes on or, or gets upgraded, makes their departure. Isn't that true? No, no, God will, the church will never be in want because God always supplies the need of his church, whoever that may be. Hmm? Yes, and Philip, this, what's Philip mean? Lover of horses, this table waiter. What a wonderful man, godly, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and God is working miraculously through him. Now, that happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He empowers you for the work of ministry he has for you to do. But everybody, unfortunately, focuses too much on the gifts of the Spirit. You don't need to worry about the gifts of the Spirit. He'll give you every gift you need to accomplish his will. What you, need, you and I need to focus on is what? The fruit. Thank you. The fruit of the Spirit. We produce the fruit of the Spirit by abiding in the vine, by abiding in Jesus. And then that fruit, which, is the, which describes really the love of God, love, joy, peace, right? 
patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faith, but self-control is exhibited in my life. Why? Because it's Christ living his life through me. And as Christ knows, he can trust you and you have surrendered to him completely. He can empower you, but he will never empower a servant. He cannot. It just won't happen. You're too self-seeking. You desire too much of your will rather than his will. Hmm. Oh, but not with Stephen, not with Philip. But there was a certain man called Simon, Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed and to the least and the greatest of them saying, this man is the power of God, the great power of God. And they hated him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Hmm. What was he doing? Witchcraft. 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 Now, now, he was purporting to be this miraculous uh, healer, hmm? this miracle worker, but he was a fraud, wasn't he? Now, there's some reason to believe that Satan was working through this man in ways that we, you and I can't explain child's play in the spiritual realm, but it wasn't of the power of God, it was the power of Satan. Now, the miracles that Stephen performed, the miracles that Philip performed, the miracles that the early church performed was for the validation, the, the authentic, authentic, yeah, bringing authentic, yeah, come on, come on. Oh, you know what I mean. What's that word? Authenticity, authenticity. My tongue got thick this morning. Authenticity to the message they were sharing. And therefore, God was validating the message, affirming the message, being authenticity. Authentic, yeah, yeah, they were authentic to the message because of the miracles that were being performed. But in the last days, miracles will be performed to do what? Deceive. To deceive. God is allowing miracles at this time to deceive many so called miracle workers, right? Read the text. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, which kingdom would that be? Actually, it's two kingdoms. He's talking about the mystery kingdom that you can enter into right now, Jews and Gentiles, Samaritans. You're not outside. God loves you as much as he loves those Jews in Jerusalem. They just don't know it. <laughs> Maybe he loves you even more now. <laughs> But he's talking about the mystery kingdom, and you know about the mystery kingdom. He's also talking about the millennial messianic kingdom that's yet to come. And so that's what they were looking forward to, and that's what he was declaring, giving them that hope, that assurance, that certainty. Hmm? Preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazing the miracles and the signs which were done. Wow. Now, we know as we go through the New Testament and we go through the Gospels in particular, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's, there's demons behind every bush, isn't there? There's demons around every corner, for goodness sakes. It's constantly casting out or confronting demons. Isn't that amazing how the demonic activity exponentially increased just prior to the first coming? Oh, one of the signs, it'll be as in the days of Noah. Hmm. An unhealthy obsession with the occult was one of the classifications or distinctives of the days of Noah. And all of this increased demonic activity that's taking place in our day is an indicator of what? The second coming. The second coming. 
Hmm. But nonetheless, with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the restraining influence of the gospel and the Holy Spirit subdued these demons. Paul tells us in Thessalonians that there's something restraining the Antichrist from coming to power right now, restraining Satan from taking captive the globe. Now, it's, it's happening slowly, incrementally, but there's going to be a day where his man will rise up out of the ashes of what, we'll talk about more of that tonight, out of the ashes of a coming conflict. And he will control the globe. And this man will have demonic power and influence. But right now, there's something restraining that from taking place. What is that restrainer? The church. The Holy Spirit working through the body of Christ. Not Christendom, the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit working through the body of Christ is restraining evil from coming to the forefront in a way that you and I would never want to see or experience. And in that time, as the gospel was going forward, it was being that restraining influence against, against all of those demonic entities and those forces that were taking place in that day. That's what happened when the gospel went to Europe, when it went west. We said that this persecution and martyrdom of Stephen ends the witness of the Holy Spirit with regard to the person of Christ in Jerusalem. It certainly does. Turn, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, maybe. Let me see. I think that's where I want to go. Yeah. Jesus is speaking to the 12. He's sending them out in chapter 10. In verse 5, it says, uh, These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, What? Do not. Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, nor enter a city of the... Hmm. Hmm. Luke chapter 9. Go there. Luke chapter 9. You there? All right, chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that's Jesus is going up and back into heaven, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before him. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans. Now, you understand uh, geographically, right, where Samaria was? In the lower portion of Israel, that was called Judea. Judea. In the middle, that was Samaria, and the northern portion? The Galilee. In the Galilee region, you had the wonderful Sea of Galilee, right? In the southern region of Judea, you had the city of Jerusalem, okay? But the sandwich in between the two was the area of the Samaritans. And, and the Jews, when they would travel from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea, what would they do? Cross over, cross over the Jordan and go up the east side so they don't have to go into the area of the Samaritans. They were so prejudiced, so discriminatory. And look what takes place here. Now, it came to pass at the time, right? He said his face, go to Jerusalem. He sent messages before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the, hmm, to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards the journey for Jerusalem. And his disciples, James and John, saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to burn them? To command fire to come down from heaven like Elijah did? We'll smoke these folk. <laughs> And what did Jesus say? You know not what spirit you are, brother. <laughs> oh, I can remember my younger days. I'd want to smoke a few folks too. 
Just, but, but interesting how Jesus tells them, do not go to Samaria. The Samarians rejected them. John and, 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 and James had a very discriminatory attitude. Go to John chapter 4. What happened in John chapter 4 in the well in Samaria? This woman meets Jesus. Yeah. We, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but just look at uh, yeah, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She, she asked the question, where, 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 you know, you Jews say you got to worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers say we worship here on Mount Gerizim. Where do we truly worship Jesus? And where do you worship him? Right here and right now in your heart, right? And that's what he's going to go on to say. Look what he says. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming in neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you be worshiping the Father, but the worship, you worship what you do not know, for we know what we worship, for salvation is of now, Jesus came for the lost house of Israel first, didn't he? That he loves them more than he loves you? No, 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 no. But the plan was he was going to save the Jews, but they rejected him, but that was part of God's plan too. Isn't it amazing? I mean, we really can't have the mind of God, nor even discern his ways, because he's so mysterious, his wonders to perform, right? But he purposed the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews for the salvation of the Gentiles. But when he came the first time, he only came for the house of Israel, that he would be represented to the house of Israel, that the Holy Spirit would bear witness of who Jesus was to Israel until the rejection. And that's what we see in chapter 8, that rejection. But he goes on to say, we know what we worship. You do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and, is not, and now is when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We talked a lot last week about, about the difference between religion and truth and theology, right? You remember? We're going through John chapter, uh, I mean, Acts chapter 8. We said that this, this battle was really between the religious Sadducean, Sadducean um, Hebraism, legalism, the law, and, and true spiritual messianic Judaism, right? Because they came to an understanding of who Jesus really is. And there's so many religions today that really don't understand that we worship him in spirit and in truth. It's with all of our heart. And then we surrender all of our life. Hmm? Back to the text. Yeah, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, but to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man has got the great power of God. And they hated him because of the, 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 he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles that he had performed, the signs and wonders. Wow. Now, there is some debate about whether this was a true conversion of Simon's or not. For the sake of our conversation this morning, we'll just assume that this is a true conversion. He really surrendered his life. Salvation, justification is of God. It's all the sovereignty of God. 
your justification, your salvation. But your sanctification, now that's another matter. Your sanctification is where your free will comes in, where you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. We know that. By not yielding to his will for your life. Not very good. Not a good plan. Won't turn out very well, will it? No. Look at the text. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had not fallen on none of them. And they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. What is that about? Wait a minute. They believed and they were baptized. What's this need for the laying on of hands? Power. Remember, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit first comes alongside, right? To bear witness of the person of Jesus Christ in our life. That, that's his, his role. The Holy Spirit, we don't even know his name, do we? We know he's the Holy Spirit. But what's his name? We'll find out in heaven. But he doesn't want us to pay attention to him. He doesn't want us to emphasize him. He came to bear witness of Jesus. The emphasis is on Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the best friend of Jesus, and that's who he witnesses about. And so when the Holy Spirit comes alongside a believer, he comes alongside them to bear witness of the truth of who Jesus is. Only the Holy Spirit can open up your eyes, your ears, your heart, your mind to the truth. Now, once that takes place and you believe... And, and baptism is just an outward sign of an inward change that's occurred. Baptism doesn't save you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what saves. But your outward baptism, that physical baptism, should be a display to the world that you've surrendered your life to Jesus, and now the Holy Spirit is not just with you, he is in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens upon salvation. Now, now, quite often, the empowerment and the indwelling can occur at the same time. But very often, it's subsequent too the empowering or the epi. And that's what he's talking about here, where the Holy Spirit doesn't, he's not just with you, he's not just in you, but he comes upon you. And he's empowering you for ministry. Now, when you come to that place, then you know it's all him. It's not you. It's all him who's doing the work. Somebody said to me this morning, are you ready? I said, I don't know if I'm ready. I mean, I prayed myself full. I mean, I, I studied myself full. I prayed myself hot, and I'll set myself loose, and we'll see what God wants to do. You know? <laughs> but that's what's happening here. So please understand that. They were saved, and they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What they didn't have was the empowering. Now, do you want the Holy Spirit to empower you? Do you want God to empower you? Then just yield. Surrender. And say, Lord, whatever. Whatever. No preconditions. No expectation. Lord, you're Lord. Whatever. You do it. And then, when he knows he can trust you, he'll empower you. It's a wonderful thing. Verse 18, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, the apostles, the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> There's, there's a term in the church that's used now after this event. What's it called? Simony. Simony. What is simony? You buy an office or you buy a favor in the church, right? How many our fathers do I have to say? How many Hail Marys? How many candles do I have to light? And how much do I have to put in the box? You know, <laughs> can you buy your way to heaven? No, 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 no. No. Does God need your money? No. Why do you need to give to God? 
to show that you're not controlled by your greed, by your lust, by your covetousness. That's why. God doesn't need it. You need to give, but God doesn't need it. Do we take an offering yet this morning? It's Christmas. We're going to have a special Christmas offering this morning. A lot of churches do that. We don't do that. In all of our time in serving the body of Christ here, we've never taken an offering except for other people. Why do we do that? Because God takes nothing from you. Nothing. But he receives what you offer him. Oh, God will receive what you offer him, but he'll take nothing from you. And what is it you're to offer him more than anything else? I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, I implore you, brethren, present yourself a living sacrifice, a holocaust. That's the word, a burnt offering. Holocaust unto God. Hmm. Simon. He had a little ways to go yet. Simon was a saved man. He's just getting a little fleshly right now. Now, that's never happened to you, has it? <laughs> of course it has, you know. We can, we can all relate. Oh, but aren't we thankful that salvation is of God? And he will, being confident of this very thing. What? He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus, no matter how hard you resist. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? All right, so look. So he thought he could buy the power of the Holy Spirit. He wanted this, this he was self-aggrandizement. He wanted self-seeking, you know. And, 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 but Peter, verse 20, Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, from this wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I say that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound up in iniquity. When's the last time you told somebody that? We don't, we don't, we don't ever want to offend anybody, do we? And, that, and that's why so many people, their, their witness is just as ineffective. Now, now, I know when people really want to hear the truth, they'll, they'll call me. They'll say, Pastor Rick, I, I know you'll tell me the truth. And, I, you know, I might not like what you're going to say, but I want to, you know, well, here's the situation. I said, okay, then what am I going to say? I said, that's exactly right. Now get out of here and go do it. Quit your whining. You know, do I need to pull a diaper out of my door, drawer? <laughs> but listen to me, beloved. There's, there's such a thing as tough love. I believe, I believe Peter's desire to rebuke this man in such a harsh manner had his desired result. I think we might be seeing Simon in heaven, that he repented. And Peter's calling him to that repentance. How many times did you allow someone to live in a characterization of sin and you said nothing? You want to make sure they're happy with you and you let them go to hell. Isn't that true? How many gatherings this Thanksgiving were people silent on the blatant rebellion, the hypocrisy, the abomination that exists in their own family, but not, not say a word? Oh, I don't want them to feel bad. I don't want to cause any trouble. It's Thanksgiving. Politics and religion, we stay away from both. The boy, we're excited about football. It shouldn't be. Listen, Peter loved this man enough to tell him the truth. 
You remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him a couple of things and he said, oh, these I've done since my youth. He said, okay, let me get to the real problem. Your covetousness, your greed, your selfishness, go sell all that you have and come and follow me. With, with, listen, would you be willing, willing to do that? If Jesus said this morning, listen, I'm coming down, I'm going to accomplish my second coming. By the way, I'd like you to be part of the team. But in order to be part of the team, here's the cost. Go sell everything and come follow me. Abandon yourself to everything but me. Would you do it? Yeah, we think we would. We think we would. And, and, and Jesus, the text tells me, Jesus loving him said, go sell everything because this is your problem. It's your greed. It's your covetousness. Mm. Peter, loving Simon, said to him, your heart is not right. Have you ever said it to somebody? Oh, you don't know my heart. God knows my heart, but I see your actions. I can interpret your heart from your actions. And Jesus gives me every right and responsibility to examine the fruitfulness in your life. And if there's an absence of fruit or if the fruit is rotten, there's no reason to believe that they're in the Lord or following the Lord. Is that not true? I'm nobody, but the Bible says, Jesus says, God said. You, you don't, listen, we don't stand on our own. I have no authority. I've shared this with you before, right? As a pastor of this church, I have no authority. The only authority I have as a pastor is this. The authority of the word of God. That's it. I have to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, right? In his word. And that's, that's our, it may be our weakest argument among those who don't believe, but that's their problem. For it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that right? Yeah. But be loving enough to share the truth. There is so much that is being... Appeasement doesn't work in the Middle East. What did Israel get after 2005 and surrendering Gaza? Death, destruction, suffering, sorrow, pain. Appeasement doesn't work. It doesn't work in your family. It didn't work in the Middle East. Truth sets people free. The truth. The truth is, if Israel surrendered all their weapons tomorrow, what would happen? They'd all be killed. They'd be butchered. If the Palestinians laid down all of their weapons and negotiated for peace, what would happen? There'd be peace. There'd be, that's the truth. That's the truth. Yes, your heart is not right. But perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound up in sin and iniquity, false teaching and sin. You're a false understanding of God and his grace. There is such a presumption upon the grace of God. The Hebrews tells us that great grace fell upon the church. And the result of that great grace that fell upon the church was that they worshiped him and served him acceptably, reverently, and with a godly fear. That's what grace produces. Grace doesn't produce a presumption upon the will of God. And seeing how much you can get away with and still be saved, great grace produces a surrender to God where you serve him reverently and with a godly fear. What's the problem today in the church? There's no fear of God. 
Finally, she's coming out. What's her name? I don't know. Lauren, uh, I don't know. Bagel, Daigle? You know? Number one female artist in the Christian world. She's a heretic. At best, she's a universalist. You understand this? Well, yeah, listen. Oh, we, we are like rats being led down into the river by the Pied Piper with Christian music today. It, it, it masquerades as worship. It's not worship at all. It's profane. Most churches where they offer a concert and cotton candy and people go out comfortable in their lostness, comfortable in going to hell, christened dumb. Hmm? Should never be. No. What was Simon's response? And we'll end here. Verse 24, then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. And so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. Wow. What a work of God. Now the word Gentile world, the Samaritans, it's going out in, not just in, in Judea, Samaria, but it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And that's how you and I <coughs> receive the gift of God in salvation. And Simon, I believe Simon repented. I believe Simon was hit right between the eyes like a bolt of lightning. Your hypocrisy will damn you, Simon. Stop it. We talked about self-deception last week. Very, 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 very dangerous to be self-deceived. And unfortunately, that's the case with most of Christendom today. They were believing they're in a relationship with God that doesn't exist because there's no power over sin. The proof of my salvation, that I'm a saved man, that I've been justified by Christ, is my sanctification. And what's my sanctification? That I want to live a life that pleases God. Not pleasing me anymore, but pleasing him. That's the proof I'm a saved man. And I want the evidence that I am a well-saved man. And the one person who can tell me that more than anybody else is her. She's the only one. I can pretend. I can masquerade. How many, how many have we seen do that? And then suddenly they fall. Suddenly you find out the truth about them. And it was all a lie they were living. Oh, it might have been teaching truth. They just weren't living truth. And it was an important question that that woman asked me yesterday. Are you living it? Are you living it? And I said, and where are you going to church? She said, I don't. Hmm. I said, have you ever heard the expression that if God is your father, the church is your? Hmm. No long ranges, right? We need one another. Christians go to church. Going to church won't save you. Will it? No. Going to McDonald's make you a hamburger? Hanging around the garage make you a car or motorcycle? No. No. But Christians go to church. They worship the Lord. And it's wonderful. I, listen, I, I would... Do we need to go to lunch or can we just continue? Because I love every Sunday morning. It's game day for me, man. I, no, I, I love Sunday. I could, I could do this all day long. And I'll be back here at 6 o'clock, and I hope you are too. I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. But I want to love you with the truth. And listen, you need to do the same out there. I, I don't know who it is that you have, the, you have a sphere of influence over who's not living to the truth, you need to tell him. He's coming. And there's a day of reckoning coming, beloved. And we got to stop playing games with God and get serious. Amen? Shall we stand? Pastor David?
Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit to www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.